Hi, this is Tamika Kasten Miller, and you are listening to Think, Flow, Grow. At the end of this and every episode, you will find a meditation. So stay tuned. Hello, everyone. This is Tamika Kasten Miller here in Houston, Texas. And today I am thinking about body positivity. When I think about the body positivity movement, I actually think about all of the people for whom this has become such a huge motivational factor to step out in their power. And then all of the detractors who would give those same people issues or negative commentary for just simply trying to live their lives. For me, um, body positivity is something that, you know, before it had a name, uh, this was something that I was thinking about as a kid. I remember being the chubbiest girl on my dance team. Uh, in Texas, we have drill teams, which are part of the band usually. And these are teams that go out and dance to perform, um, similar to the dance team, but they're different. And they're very, very important in Texas culture because they compete. They're kind of like that in-between spot between the cheerleaders and uh, the the dance team. And uh, they are the dance team when a school doesn't have one. And so when I was uh, in, I guess it was probably fifth grade, we had a little teeny tiny drill team in the middle school and I had a lot of friends who were in it. That was just kind of a way that I found my way. And I kept getting chunkier and uh, none of the other girls did. There was one other girl who is a little chubby, who is also on the drill team, but I was still the, the chubbiest. And then high school came and that's when the important things happen. You know, once high school comes, that's, that's when drill teams got super competitive. Um, my drill team in particular would be um, or the, the school, uh, my school's drill team would be national champions that year. If you've ever seen movies like, uh, bring it on and things like that. I mean, that was my, my high school in terms of cheerleading and drill teams. They were just champions. And so having a chunky girl on the team didn't really fit that world. It was around that time when I started having thoughts about what my legs looked like because I carried my weight in my legs and, um, and I really had this thing about my knees because everyone has, you know, had these cute little knees that protruded out from their legs, whereas my knees kind of receded back and then all of my my, uh, the skin and, and fat and all that in my thighs, um, were above it like a shelf. And I hated that. The funny thing is that, um, my knees were very similar to my mom's knees. And, and as I look at my family, you know, these, 
these were not necessarily something that were unique, but it didn't matter. I didn't care about my family. What I cared about was what my legs look like. And so the, uh, um, the funny thing is my mom actually also had a thing about her knees. I would find out later she had a thing about being knock kneed and that was her issue with her, her body was her knock knees. So, you know, I always knew that everyone had a, had a thing, but a unique uh, situation in my family is that um, what I didn't know at the time was that when my parents were going through what would end up being the, the precursor to their divorce, as people do when they're getting divorced, they, they you know, arguments got really ugly and all of that. And my father started to tell my mom how fat she was and how she would never find someone else and all of this. And um, somewhere in my mother's world, she was just like, I don't care how fat I am. You will not be with my fat ass and kicked him out of the house. I did not know about this. Maybe my older sister knew about this, but they did a really great job of keeping their arguments away from us. And so when they did get divorced, we really didn't know all of the vitriolic commentary that had happened between them. It wouldn't be until later that we found these things out. So I'm over here in high school, like loathing my legs. And then also at this time, I realized that I was a, you know, the bigger girl in the room and the, and the bigger person in general. And most of the things that I was interested in because I'm a very active person and, uh, I just hated to show my legs. So this one day, uh, my mother, she, um, and I'll come back to what's unique about my situation in a moment, but mm, one day I was going out to the pool. I live in, I'm living in Dallas, Texas. It's very hot. And I was wearing long pants. My mother was just like, why are you wearing long pants? Like put on shorts. And I said, but mom, I, you know, I don't want to show my knees. And my mother said, girl, men don't care about what your, your skin looks like. They just want to see skin. <laughs> and I just remember thinking, I wonder how true that is. But coming back to what was unique about my situation is that my mother then became this huge like voice of reason for me. Also, she became this big girl's role model. When my parents divorced, things were much lighter in my household because it turns out that my dad was actually an alcoholic and things were really, really stressful around the house. I kind of not followed all of that because I was doing school and all those things. And I, I recognized early on that it was nicer to be at school than it was to be at home. But I, I did, you know, really enjoy being away from the house. So when I started being home more often, because my mother was uh, now transitioning from being a, an at-home mom to actually having to go out in the workforce, um, you know, we were at home a little more because we had to take care. I had to take care of my little brother um, because my sister is now away at college. So my mother became this crucial feature, fixture in my world that was kind of helping me frame my world. 
And I just remember, I don't know where she got it, but she had this confidence. And my mother has always had always been a confident woman. Um, she was always a very attractive woman. She was favored um, in her family. The reasons for which I'll, I'll uh, actually had to do with the color of her skin. Um, but she always had kind of this attitude about her that is, I am fabulous. And so when she got divorced, all of her fabulousness just decided to pour out of her. I distinctly remember her having the cable guy or the gas guy or the phone guy, or whatever, whenever the, the pizza delivery guy, whenever they come to the door, she would flash her perfect smile and they would just like, you know, be caught up with, with not knowing how to handle that smile and her presence and to flirt with them. And she'd be like, Oh, I'm so, thank you so much. And Oh, well, isn't that a nice shirt? And she flirted with everyone. My mother loved to flirt. What was crazy was mother was a full-figured woman, over 200 pounds, um, uh, definitely a full-figured woman by any standards, and she rocked it. People gagged over my mother. My mother always had men calling and throwing themselves at her. And so I learned from an early, from the age of about 14, that size was not uh, something that determined your worth or your beauty. I saw how my mother was just sought after, beautiful, magnanimous, um, how people were so drawn to her, and she was a full-figured woman. Interestingly, I also, as I referenced in, in another episode, I also saw Oprah Winfrey who, because at this time, this is right when Oprah Winfrey is right on the scene and everyone's following her, um, including myself. And I saw a very public struggle with weight loss um, with Oprah Winfrey. I remember when she lost a ton of weight and came out with the, the, the red wagon full of fat, the amount of fat that she lost behind her. And she was so skinny and then she immediately started gaining weight again. And then the, the public response to that and her responses to that. And it was just very, very public. And as someone who identified with Oprah Winfrey, for some reason, that battle with weight was also something that I thought might, you know, I, I, it resonated with me. I, I wasn't yet in it, but it was almost as though a seed was planted because I did see that this woman who... Um, had a similar shape to myself was was actively working to change it. On the other hand, I saw my mother who wasn't actively working to change her shape, and she was just like you know the belle of the ball. You know, she would go to her family reunions, and she was always like, "Oh, I have to find out my the most fabulous outfit because I am the sexiest woman in the room." And <laughs> she and she would go on solo travel um, journeys uh, to Jamaica and St. Croix, and just go have so much fun, and um, just go be her, just living her best life. And I inherited that confidence from her. I did see other public battles, but I inherited my confidence from her. And I knew that I looked like my mother and that I um, could have that same um, sex appeal and that same 
sexiness when I came into my own. And it definitely made it feel, or I definitely interpreted it as some, as a product of confidence, um, not necessarily a product of what the skin was doing. And actually I would learn that that was so true. I mean, what attracted people to me and what has attracted people to me over time has been, you know, a, a sense of confidence and a sense of knowing of myself um, and an authenticity, I would argue that, you know, people feel drawn to that, especially people who don't necessarily have that. I remember watching uh, an interview with Lisa Nicole Carson uh, one day. If you don't know who she is, she was an actress who was on Ally McBeal. She was um, the black one of the black actresses on there. Uh, she was also the lead actress in uh, Jason's Lyric, and she was in other movies. Um, she was this beautiful, full-figured woman, and just gorgeous uh, woman. And she was on this show that used to be on that was called The Lauren Bacall Show. It was Lauren Bacall, the former model who had the gap. And uh, I loved Lauren Bacall because I also have a gap and. I remember thinking, oh, yay, she has a gap like me. You know, gaps don't mean that your teeth are ugly or anything. And so um, she was on this show and they were talking about beauty. And Lisa Nicole Carson said, you know, white women have always had this uh, visual of what beauty looks like, you know, in, in, in paintings they've had you know, these, these women who are, are curvaceous figures when they're tending to the Renaissance aesthetic. And then in the sixties, there was Twiggy. And so Twiggy, you know, everyone tried to look like Twiggy and then Twiggy really kind of changed the way that women were viewed and, and how beauty was defined. And now everyone wants to be super thin and all of that. Of course, we have Marilyn Monroe um, in there who was giving uh, a more curvaceous ideal of beauty. But what she said was that white women have always had these standards of beauty defined for them because they have been, they can see themselves in media. There have always been white women on TV, movies, and things like that. And because of that, what is glamorous and what is beautiful has always has been um, defined by those those beauty standards upheld in magazines and TV and movies because black women weren't were largely not on movies magazine in magazine on magazine covers and in uh, in tv land and when they were there were minor roles they were never created they were not roles that were like glamorous for black women to say oh that's beauty and so black women haven't had the standard of beauty defined for them until recently um and certainly when she was talking this is in the early 2000s i believe and that was definitely still a thing. These these standards of beauty didn't really apply to black women because they weren't from black women. And, uh, and black women were not being told, oh, this is what beautiful looks like in terms of size. Um, so uh, that stuck with me because I thought, oh, this is why my white friends tend to really struggle with with 
their weight as being the definer of how attractive they are because they've had people, all of these, you know, Marilyn Monroe, Twiggy, um, all of these models, um, Linda Evangelista, um, you know, Heidi Klum, they've had all these people telling them what showing them what they should look like. But in Blacklandia, who's been around, you know, it wasn't until really Halle Berry and, um, you know, really came to prominence who, who started playing various roles and started being around that people started saying, Oh, okay. Like Halle Berry's really beautiful. And, and preceding her, of course, we have the incredible Diane Carroll, um, who can define what glamour and luxuriousness looks, looked like. But these are very, very few people. It's not like mm, you could turn, you could have turned on the TV and seen, oh, okay, that's what black beauty looks like, or this is what, uh, you know, um, a beautiful black body looks like. Those things just were not as accessible. And so beauty standards for black women have been defined as different. So I know I was having conversations with, uh, friends after I saw a post by uh, a yogi. Um, This woman is a gorgeous woman with a phenomenal figure by any person's standards. You don't have to, you know, have any type of um, (laughs) uh, vision to see this woman's incredible figure. I'm going to guess that she's probably you know, a size four or, or six or something, but she's very curvy. Um, and so just a really beautiful woman or has a beautiful body. Um, and, um, and in a post she was talking about how she, you know, was reckoning with the fact that she's never going to be the size that she was when she was 18 and how, Um, you know, she's had to, she still struggles with her weight and, you know, she's working to uh, embrace herself at at this size. Now my mind was blown. I was like, are you kidding me right now? Like you're tiny, you're a tiny, tiny woman and you are having this body dysmorphia is the only thing I can, I can think because she's a tiny woman that absolutely was working to accept her body. And this is before any of the age thing comes out either because she's in her twenties. And I'm like, wow, like how thin do you have to be to consider yourself thin enough or beautiful enough? And so I realized I had this huge like aha moment that for white women and Latinas, beauty is defined by size. And for black women and Asian women, beauty is defined by color. Now, colorism is definitely a thing within Latino, Latinx community as well but is a huge thing in Asian and black cultures. Huge. Um, I think that colorism really should be a part of the body positivity 
movement because a lot of what I have seen is people accepting their bodies, for example, in these body positivity posts, but then using filters to lighten their skin or to somehow um, show a different aspect of their skin. And so when it comes to body positivity, I mean, I would argue that our skin is a part of our body and, and how you feel about your skin includes how you feel about your color. So let's just go back and look at all of these things. I mean, I think that with body positivity, we is very obvious. I don't have to really give a big history lesson on why a woman's size has changed over time to be where it is right now in terms of what we think, what is the traditional standard of beauty before, of course, full figured indicated um, wealth. And so full, fuller figured woman is more attractive. Of course, we look at the Greek standard of beauty. We have definitely women who are curvaceous. So if you look at the birth of Venus, for example, um, Venus, uh, you know, this is an extraordinarily famous painter. And in, in the birth of Venus, for example, um, Venus is, is depicted a little bit smaller. Whereas if you look at, at, that's a 19th century painting. Whereas if you look at the older paintings of the nymphs and of Daphne and of, um, and of women in general who are the Renaissance and depicted in Renaissance times, which are um, 14th and 15th centuries, women are more curvaceous, more fuller figured and things like that. So we can definitely see that women are being depicted as curvaceous and fuller figured um, in the 14th, 15th and 16th centuries. And then as we get into the 18th and 19th centuries, they start getting a little bit smaller. But women in the in the African continent, for example, are still being appreciated for being fuller figured because again, that connotes that that woman has a sort of power or status um, that that is a good thing. And this is also something that um, we see in some Asian cultures as well. But in European culture, the depiction of the woman is getting just a bit smaller. And of course, this continues as we move into moving pictures. And as we move into moving pictures, you'll start to see women who are a bit smaller on the, on the big screen, whereas like pinup dolls and things like that are still fuller figured women. And so a lot of people use the argument of Marilyn Monroe as this fuller figured woman who is the standard of beauty, but what they are not acknowledging is that while yes, she was the standard of beauty, it was a pinup standard of beauty. And so she was a standard, definitely a standard of beauty, but in a very sexualized way. What ends up happening in our culture is as who is uh, of an upper class versus who is of a working or a slave class, what that looks like starts to change. And this is why women start being depicted as smaller. So we know that there are fuller figure black women who are being depicted as mammy, as the mammy 
figure and um, all of the antebellum and, and slave depictions. We always have a mammy character who's a, a, a fat black woman who is taking care of the kids and the, and the family and the house and all of that. And then we also start to see a, uh, curva a, a, a sort of curvaceous woman who is the, the vixen, who is also this woman who is very Delilah oriented, who begins to rope in the white man and who begins to get his attention and pull him away from his white counterpart, his wife, his wife. Um, of course we know that this is not true. We know that this is just a colonial or colonized narrative that what was really happening was that white European men or their, and their descendants were, uh, actively raping black women and turning them into their concubines and forced uh, into you know those situations because of power because rape doesn't have an element of um, it's not about sexual desire it's about power and of course if you're a slave owner or you're an employer and you get to um, completely take uh, a, a woman's power by having her be your sex slave or be your concubine or whatever you want to call it, that's, a, that's about power. That has nothing to do with love or anything like that. I'll go ahead and put out there, were there some relationships that were loving out there? Yes. But typically, historically, what has been shown is that if there was a loving relationship between a slave master and an, and, a, and an enslaved African, then that person, that the master freed that person eventually, whether it was at his death or during his life or what have you. So anybody who was still in captivity, that was not a loving relationship. And of course, the most famous one to note is Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. But going back to how this then framed how women looked at one another, if you have the civilized, genteel woman who is the, um, the legitimate wife, um, then she has to look different than the illegitimate one. And so in media, how this starts to look is this very kind of genteel, you know, think, um, uh, gone with the wind, this very kind of genteel character of, um, she may, you know, be feisty or whatever, usually not. Usually she's very kind of quiet and allows her husband to do whatever, but for sure she is small, she is fair, and she's usually thin. And so this, this depiction be starts to become the, the, the visual narrative of what of what a, a white upper class woman looks like versus the working class or the enslaved who which which had a variety of shapes everything from very small and 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 beaten down from being out in the fields to this mammy character who lived very well but you know took care of the family 
so there's an importance to this also a polished look amongst women and, and how they have to, to look in order to be a part of this upper class, upper crust, um, non-slave um, narrative. They have to also be polished, they have to be thin, and they have to be genteel. So we start seeing this in media, and then there is this pinup culture that surges. But I would argue, and this is a non-academic, um, this is not, this has nothing to do with any kind of research, but I would argue that everything that has been considered mm, sultry or under the table or anything like that within white culture has oftentimes come from black culture or appropriating black culture. So if we look at rock and roll, rock and roll was this underground sultry, like, you know, um, don't dance to it, listen to it in the juke joint, you know, go away and go be dirty and listen and dance to that dirty rock and roll, that Satan oriented rock and roll, that Negro music, you know, is, it was definitely like this underground movement that came to prominence. Well, if we look at pinup culture, pinup culture was was curvaceous women who I would argue had a body shape that was similar to the 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 curvaceous nature that was not being celebrated with white women. On the contrary, that curvaceousness was something that was being seen with black women. And so it would make sense that pinup culture then becomes this kind of underground sultriness and da 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 da. And what is actually appealing to white men, um, but certainly it is not necessary. You're not going to marry the pinup. And we see this with Marilyn Monroe, in that um, she is certainly sought after. Certainly, um, a woman who men long for women long for men want to be with her women want to be her and vice versa and um and she's she's not the one president kennedy is going to marry right so he's going to have jackie this thin um quiet small um theoretically small we know jackie doesn't end up being a small person but um, at that time, certainly quiet, allowing um, woman who's there just to, you know, tend to her husband and the children while he is shagging the crap out of Marilyn Monroe, um, as well as all of his cronies and da 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 da, who's this pinup, this real life pinup, essentially. And so we, it, the, the understanding of what becomes beautiful or what becomes acceptable beauty then uh, is, is a small white woman and a and black woman's uh, body beauty is not necessarily defined. However, I will say that black women who do not have curves and who are just kind of bigger women do get this association with this mammy characteristic or this mammy character, this mammy archetype. Whereas women who are curvaceous, who are, you know, who do have that Coca-Cola body shape get more uh, put into this vixen stereotype. Who's going to go out and go take your man and who's going to um, lure him into uh, the throes of ecstasy with all of her 
her unbridled sexiness. And again, this gets transferred into white pinup culture. Now, when it comes to color, this is a horse of a different color. This is a, there's a totally different thing happening. However, it is still related to the classes. When there comes to color, we know, I think anybody who's opened a book knows that whiter was better, period. We can go back in time and see this not only here in the United States, we can see this um, in Europe, we can certainly see it in Africa, uh, I'm sorry, in Asia, where, um, you know, powdering oneself and, and making the appearance of this porcelain skin is definitely something that was done across continents to come to this standard of beauty. But here in the United States, what it gets really interesting within black culture is how colorism really began. And this is actually, um, I actually wrote a paper on this that eventually I'll, I'll get published in something, but, uh, <laughs> but an academic paper that I did with uh, the University of New Orleans. And um, with with this, this is quite interesting. So what ended up happening is those same black women who were, you know, luring white men away. Well, actually, it didn't actually begin that that way. Um, it really depends on the part of the what's now the U.S. or Latin America you are in. And for all intents and purposes, when I refer to America, America is Canada to Argentina. Um, so when I refer to America, that's what I'm talking about. When we're looking at the Euro European contact, when Europeans came to what's now the Americas, um, or America, Spaniards, of course, we know, um, well, Spaniards didn't come first, but Spaniards came and stayed first. So we know that preceding Columbus by hundreds of years, um, Vikings in, uh, were the first to actually make uh, contact in what's now America. But, you know, the first documented contact of that that has widely been accepted before people acknowledged um, Eric the Red and Leif Erikson were about, of course, Columbus and his cronies. When the Spaniards came over, who came with the Spaniards were men. They were usually, there were a handful of priests and they were uh, military men and, ex and, and, and explorers. There were also some second sons because, of course, second sons weren't really entitled to anything. And so what happened was the Spanish crown said, all right, you go out and you go to the Americas and we're going to grant you this land. And on that tract of land, you need to till the land and Christianize anyone who's there and civilize them. And so of course, so of course, the people who were coming were men because the Spaniards did not believe that was the role of a woman to do. 
so men came and they were Christianizing, quote, Christianizing uh, native peoples and, quote, taking care of them. Some of them really did take care of them. A lot of people quote uh, Bartolome de las Casas as a, as a you know, an incredible person who ended up exposing Christopher Columbus's um, atrocities and genocide. He was an encomendero. He was a, a person uh, who was given this land grant to go out and till the land and um, and Christianize the people who lived on that land. What ended up happening is him seeing Columbus uh, at, for who he was really kind of showed him, you know, what type of person that was and what type of situation um, they were really in in terms of what they were doing with the natives. But anyway, the point is, is that men were the only ones coming. So of course, if men are the only ones coming, they're sleeping with whatever they're sleeping with, whether it be animals or, or you know, unsuspecting indigenous women and girls and men. So they're doing all of those things and, and, and raping uh, all of those people and animals. And... <laughs> Because they, they're not coming with women. Um, well, theoretically, that's the reason. So you have a whole bunch of men who are bored, right? All right, then, but that was the Spaniards. When the, when the, the French came, and of course they come to um, what's now uh, Louisiana, uh, Missouri. Um, Louisiana was actually far bigger than what is currently Louisiana. And when they came, initially, they all, it was also only men. Of course, by this time, the slave trade has begun. And so they have a variety of people and things to rape now. They have indigenous women, and they also have uh, enslaved Africans. Um, and, and so, of course, that's happening, again, because there are no women who are coming with them. So that's the excuse that they, they make, is that, well, I have to live here. I'm supposed to be here for an, forever. I'm supposed to be here without a woman? No. So they go out and they create these relationships. Now, with the French, it was quite interesting because the thought process behind the French and enslaved Africans wasn't necessarily the same, largely because enslaved Africans and uh, Native Americans in Louisiana had begun procreating amongst themselves. And so because Spain was also, uh, a, uh, I'm sorry, Louisiana was also a Spanish colony at one time, um, Spain had announced a rule that Native Americans could not be enslaved. And so then all of these, uh, they were called sambos, who were the progeny of a black person and an indigenous person, they couldn't be enslaved. So of course, if you're a Sambo, mind you, this is Z-A-M-B-O, but it sounds like S-A-M-B-O, which is the where we get the word Sambo today uh, in English, but these Sambos could not be enslaved, theoretically, according to the law. So what ends up happening is a lot of these French folks end up procreating with these mixed race, black and indigenous people, and they can't be enslaved, or perhaps they are enslaved, um, but they but they still procreate with them because they don't look like the enslaved African who is not mixed race. 
this is the beginning of colorism where we start seeing a preferential treatment given to mixed race people because they have a part, what is part of what's mixing in their race is, is uh, illegal to enslave. And so this preferential treatment then gets, it begins to change. And, and um, as the black person begins to become lighter, because of course now they're progeny between the French person and the mixed race black and native person. There is progeny between the the white European the white European and the enslaved African. There are there's mixed race between or there's progeny between the European or the the, the peninsular is what we would say in Spanish and the Native American, all of this mixing begins to happen. And all while that mixing is happening, the preferential treatment is going toward those who are fairer. Again, first because of legislation, and then later because the, the plantation owner or the owner is giving uh, preferential treatment to his progeny or to his concubine or his enslaved wife or what however you want to call it this of course seeds a, a class or caste system um, within the populations of color within what is now the united states and latin america because of that preferential treatment so this um was interesting about the the seeding of colorism is that in the case of, for example, Louisiana, we begin to see so many different variants of mixing. There are eight main ones um, where we start seeing in the city of New Orleans balls in St. Louis Cathedral that are the quadroon balls or the people who are very, very, very fair um, black people, mixed race black people who are free because of the circumstances into which they were born. And this culture becomes this, this huge class of people that really are living like white people um, or close to it. Interestingly, these people are oftentimes Catholic because they were allowed to be baptized in the Catholic church. Whereas the darker you were or the more African you were, the blacker you were, you're more likely to be a Baptist um, because you weren't inside of that same, uh, you weren't allowed at the table as it were or in the house. And, and this division of, of, of castes just proliferates because of course, as people continue to have more sex, as children are more, are born more and more often, um, this, uh, this sense of, of delineating value by the skin color becomes, uh, even more pervasive and what ends up happening amongst mixed race black people is now they don't want to darken the line. So they start to, um, have, uh, children with other mixed race people. There are actually arranged marriages to maintain the color line. Um, between mixed race people. 
So what ends up happening is, um, of course, the Civil War happens. And once the Civil War has happened and slaves are free, um, or, well, initially, of course, we have the, the outlawing of the transatlantic slave trade. Then we have the domestic slave trade here in the U.S. that is headquartered out of New Orleans. Um, there, there are just so many layers to this. But once the Civil War happens... Um, and slaves are free, the Emancipation Proclamation is signed, then all of a sudden everybody black is free, theoretically. Obviously, we know that this isn't implemented, you know, well across the board. But everyone is free. So now you have people who were originally the free, the free people, the free people of color who had been free for one reason, shape, or form, either the child of nine times out of 10, it was the child out of a mixed race coupling, um, or somewhere down the line, that was the situation. So you have the free people of color who had been free before the civil war. And then you have the new freed black freedmen, black freedmen and group. These groups begin to clash because of course, if, if you've been free longer, you think that you're better, right? Plus you're, let's say you think you're, most of those people are fairer complected than the new freedmen. Um, although that wasn't necessarily true because there was no black and white to this. There was no, if you were fair complected, you were free or almost free or better treated. And if you were darker complected, you were worse treated. There are always, um, there's always crossover in all of this. So please don't come at me with, well, that's not true, but well, there were, uh, there was always crossover. What I'm saying is there were large swaths of, um, fair complected people who did get better treatment. And now they have to look at their darker counterparts, their Baptist darker counterparts, and their French as as the, as their their equal now. No, this is when the term Black Creole comes up as a thing. So these original free free uh, people of color um, who were largely mixed race. They start referring to themselves as black Creole and everyone else is just black. And that's how they start to determine who is who. And black Creoles would just mix with other black Creole families, even if they were related. And oftentimes they were to keep the line light. So we know for sure that the, we know also know that there is the, the great migration where people start going off to different areas. And we also know that there are people who are so fair that they begin to pass. And a lot of these people go to California um, so that they can pass. And I distinctly remember in the 80s, you know, like, oh, this white couple has black child. What happened? And I'm like, well, somebody was passing in that family. Grandma was passing, you know, but there and there are movies depicting this imitation of life where you have someone who's super fair complected who can pass. And a lot of people do not believe that this is possible, that, that someone could be so fair that they can pass, but it is definitely possible. My mother um, used to tell the story all the time of when her father, my grandfather was um, the product of, uh, of a rape uh, situation between her, his mother was a former slave and, uh, and the plantation owner raped her. And, um, 
he was so fair complected that he, he, you know, I just remember people seeing my grandfather and they couldn't believe that he was my grandfather. Um, she, my mother tells the story of when he had an accident, he was a railroad man. He had an accident and was taken to the hospital. They took him to the white hospital and, uh, because they didn't know. And then when his mom shows up, you know, they're like, oh, oh are you his, uh, his mammy? And they're like, she's like, no, that's my son. And they threw him out of that hospital. They had no idea that he was black. And so they just threw him out because he was in the white hospital. But what's crazy is that that was, that was how fair some black people were and are still and are able to, to pass if, if they, if they choose that. And that the issue of passing then became a big problem between black people, because if you could have the privilege of passing, um, then those who couldn't, you know, there was a problem with that. We know that there is the paper bag test that um, was like, if you're lighter than this paper bag, then you're, then you're better versus if you're darker, you're worse. Um, I remember stories that my mother would tell me of her own grandmother giving preferential treatment, which is what I referenced earlier, um, from her lighter complected grandchildren. So certainly this colorism is something that within at least black culture we have grown up with, but I don't know that everyone really understands the rationale or the beginnings behind it. I doubt it. And the fact that it is all a product of um, a slave mentality. So by us continuing to delineate worth based on color is the is to continue that slave narrative, essentially, by saying, okay, black is dark as this and fair as that. And, and I see this even when we're talking about, oh, that yellow girl over there or whatever. Um, in fact, I was talking to a yoga student the other day who's, who's a very, very fair complected black woman. And we were talking about how she gets people who throw shade at her because she is a fair complected woman and she can, she could pass if she wanted to, she doesn't, but she could. And she was talking about, I didn't ask for this privilege. You know, this is, this is just what I look like, you know? And I thought to myself, well, of course you didn't. That's the skin you were born in. And if we're being body positive people, why wouldn't we just accept people for the skin that they're in as well? Because that's actually a part of being a body positive um, and conscious group of people. Um, as, as women of color, I think that we need to do a much better job of accepting the entire spectrum of, of color and, and people because a, no one has the, um, no one has the, no one was in charge of what color they were. You know, everyone is just born into whatever skin that they're in. And just like size, Oftentimes, uh, you know, size is something that, you know, there are a lot of genetic factors, metabolic factors that come into play with a person's size. There are things that people can change about their size and there are people that, pe that things that people cannot change about their size. And everyone is just trying to live their lives. So as we are in these body positivity, you know, uh, conversations, we also need to be acknowledging that colorism affects those things as well. 
we can't be over here being like, oh yeah, you know, we embrace women of all sizes and then, and then calling fair complected women, um, uh, you know, more beautiful or, um, thinking she's, you know, all that because she's fair and giving darker complected women some other treatment, you know, or, oh, well, she's so, um, authentic or whatever, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of microaggressive conversation and all of this, you know, saying that this is what this is and this is what that is. And so I think that we definitely need to put these conversations together so that we can heal our world. You know, the way that women see one another and the way that women support one another will certainly affect the world that we live in because we are the, we're the mothers, you know, we are the ones producing, um, progeny, whether, and, and whether or not they're our own, or if there are girls looking up to us, um, who will then have their own progeny, the way that we view ourselves certainly shapes the next generation. And then of course we have men and boys who are shaping how to look at women, how to approach women, gain consent, speak to women, how to not treat women as objects, how to not objectify um, women and see women as human beings who have equal value. And uh, in order to reduce toxic masculinity, the conversation around how we look at women and how women look at one another has to be addressed as well. So I am invite all of my conscious people to really consider how your gaze is set. You know, when you look at, um, and, and this is something that, that we've, that sociologists have measured with young black girls is, is determining who is prettier, like what doll is prettier. And they, they always, they tend to go to the white doll as saying the white doll is pretty and the black doll is ugly. This is the society that we are raising our kids in, you know, to see what is beautiful and what is not. And while social media has definitely made this uh, a more aggressive situation. You know, we have Instagram models who are showing how beautiful they are because of how skinny they are or because of how, you know, perfectly crafted their bodies are. And we, and, and we know for sure that those women are, are doing very unhealthy things to themselves in order to um, maintain that status in terms of just eating laxatives all the time or taking pills that will do long time, long-term damage, not eating at all, excessive fasts, um, excessive, um, diets and things like that, working out four to five t- hours a day and things like that in order to, to have a look that the, just to be able to get likes and just to be able to keep that status. And with, uh, people struggling from the effects of colorism is the same people lightening their skin and people utilizing foundations to appear lighter than what they are. Of course, there are lots of skin lightening products that everyone from Michael Jackson to Sammy Sosa to little Kim have used. Um, 
Prince Royce has lightened his skin color. Go back and Google a picture of old school Prince Royce and look at him now and see how different his color is. And then, of course, we're not even talking about people like Lil' Kim or Sammy Sosa who have completely just damaged their skin to look a certain way. And, of course, people would argue that Michael Jackson had a skin disorder. Yeah, his skin disorder was colorism. And and the product of that was him lightening his skin. So when we look at all of these um, folks who are, are lightening their skin and, and Asia. Wow. I mean, look at colorism in Asia, just Google colorism in Asia and look at all of the products and the ads that show that dark is bad. Light is good. And these are the messages that we're sending our children and we're sending to the, the generation that is up and coming that is pervasive because social media is everywhere. And because social media is everywhere, we can also be the change in that. Just as there is a, a body positivity movement that is oriented to size, we can also have uh, a body positivity movement that is oriented to color, that embraces a variety, the entire spectrum of colors, that doesn't give preference to fair complexion or straight hair, European uh, standards of beauty, because all of that is bullshit anyway. None of that is what anyone actually thought of themselves. I'm sure there are a bunch of women who sat for those paintings who would have preferred to have been a voluptuous woman, but it was not the standard at the time. And of course, this might be you as well, where you're like, man, I'm just, the food is my enemy and I don't want food to be my enemy. I want food to be my friend and da, 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 da. Well, it can be, but it's going to take all of us saying that, you know, beauty is not singular to this, you know, this, these particular dimensions or this particular hue. It will take all of us. In yogic terms, this um, desire to be something that we are not is is also counter counter intuitive to a yogi's um, a, a yogi's um, a yogi mindset. You know, we are in the business of practicing santosha or con- contentment, and that contentment is also a contentment for who we are, what we look like, the skin that we are in, the body that we are in. And that contentment is on the path of becoming um, uh, more in union, which is the yoga. Yoga means union, the union of self, the union of all of the layers of the self. A sense of contentment toward oneself is important. Can we make changes while contented? Yes. But I think that how we're motivated or what motivates us to make those changes or manifestations is, am I altering myself to look like someone else or am I peeling back the layers of shame, trauma, cultural norms? Am I pulling back those things to get back to what is my truth? If what's peeling back the layers to get to truth is what one is doing, then that's just enlightening. But if we're trying to look like other people and we're being, we're being, we're, we're, we're coveting other people's bodies, then that's not a yogic philosophy anyway. And there are yoga teachers who are not only battling these issues for themselves, but through microaggressive language and through 
um, through latent um, hostilities toward fuller figured people, which is really just a reflection of them being hostile toward their inner fat girl or their inner fat boy use language that then is hurtful to not only their students, but to the community in general. True yoga means that we do not have to change anything about ourselves to practice it. True yoga is, is us coming to the table to have a, this experience that gets us closer to our true nature. And if we are approaching it as at something that that requires a change in order to achieve, and I myself am am very much guilty of this. This is why I am still in my yoga as it relates to santosha. The true yoga does not require us to change anything about our bodies to do. So if we are getting those messages, that it's important to understand that that person who's sending that message is just really just projecting their own. Um, unrealized and unmanifested and unenlightened version of his or herself onto, um, onto the student, but also that there is work to be done in this area of uh, this sense of, of contentment with self. And so as a, a woman who, who sits in the middle of all of it, you know, I sit in the middle of the color spectrum for, you know, blackness and I sit in the middle of it for, you know, the size spectrum, if you will. I'm certainly a full figure yogi and I'm certainly a yogi who um, would love to have less mass. And if that doesn't happen, then that doesn't happen. I'm not going to kill myself to make it happen. I will do my best to make it happen and I'm not going to die over it because of stress or because of um, lack of love for myself. I just, I just refuse to do it. I can't do that. It's not who I am. It's not who I am and it's not what I'm about. So what can you do going forward? Be mindful of what you post, what you say. Be mindful of what you say about one another. Be mindful of what you say about people's hair. If you have an issue with hair, that's your issue. Deal with it. You know, be mindful of what you do to change yourself to look like something else and that doesn't look like anyone else in your family. Why are you doing that? And also be aware of family that is not helpful. People who, especially my Latina sisters, you know, who have those family members, they go home to their, to, you know, Venezuela or Colombia or, you know, whatever. And their parent, their family members are like, I, pero estás muy de allá, you know, like, oh, you're so, you're, you're, you're really on that North American Kool-Aid, drinking that Kool-Aid by getting chunky, you know, or things like that. Look, that is their issue. You do not have to, um, you do not have to, to follow that. You get to be your own person. We all get to be our own people. We get to be the determiners of what we believe is beautiful. What is our standard? We get to determine that. If that means altering your body in a health and healthy and safe way, then alter your body in that healthy and safe way. Go out there and run those miles, walk those miles, you know, eat that, you know, whatever that, it, but, but have that be what you want for yourself, you know, and if you like to make your skin lighter? Well, I would really question why. Um, but, uh, I, I would hope that we can all come to a moment where we are loving the bodies that we are in 
And I believe that this love for our bodies is something way beyond what we thought was just like giving a like to a full figured model. It's more than that. It's size, it's color, it's hair texture, it's all of it. And may we all be loving and supportive of the gamut of who we all are because we are just people. Come into a lying down position or a seated position for meditation. Feel free to pause this recording while you get prepared. Just begin noticing your breath. Notice the location of your breath, the rise and fall of your chest or shoulders or belly. Notice its depth. And take an inhale into your chest center. Notice your shoulder blades expand upward. And exhale, shoulders get deeper and heavier into the mat. Breathe again, full inhale, chest rises. Exhale, shoulders lower, chest lowers. Now inhale into your upper belly. Feel your ribs expand outward. Exhale, ribs stitch back together. Inhale, ribs spread wide. Exhale and ribs come back to the natural station. Now inhale into your low belly. Notice the pelvic floor press downward. And exhale, low belly returns. Pelvic floor returns to its natural state. Inhale, fill the belly like a giant balloon. Fill it all the way up until it's taut. And exhale, the balloon deflates. Pelvic floor rests back in its natural position. Now attempt to send your breath to your head. Somewhere between your nostrils and the crown of your head, fill air filling up in your head, between your ears, in the back of your throat. And as you exhale, all of the air goes out through your nostrils and perhaps even your mouth. And do that again. Fill up, breathe in through your nostrils, sense the backs of your eyes the top of your head, and the back of your throat, and exhale out through parted lips. Now begin breathing naturally again, and notice where your natural inhale lands on your body. Notice if your shoulders move, or if your ribs expand. 
Does your belly rise? Does your pelvic floor press down? Notice if you feel your breath behind your eyes, in the back of your throat. And now fill your entire body with breath all the way from the crown of your head to your pelvic floor. And as you exhale, allow for everything to come back to its natural resting state. And take a full breath in. Fill every space in your body. Fill up. And exhale, empty completely out, creating space for new breath. And then come back to your natural breath again. And now begin to notice yourself, the connection between yourself and the mat. Now see yourself lying down on the mat. And see yourself as light. Give yourself a color. And look down at yourself on your mat or in your chair. See yourself in your home. Now see yourself in your city. In your state or province. See yourself in your country, continent, and in earth. See that tiny light in earth. And then come back down to seeing yourself where you are face-to-face -face with yourself. And then see yourself stand up and begin walking. Walking out through a field. Notice the surroundings of your field. Is it filled with grass and brush and flowers? Or is it sandy? and barren. Just see yourself walking through the field of your imagining. Notice it's the tells. And as you continue walking, you notice a cave in front of you. Any sensations or emotions that come up, you allow for them to be seen and acknowledged, and then they fall away. And step into the cave. Notice its darkness. And allow for any sensations that come up with that to fall to the side. And continue walking into the cave. And as you go deeper in the cave, it gets darker. And keep walking and notice that there's something in the corner. Something that is flickering. Get closer. Notice that it is a lantern. 
an old school lantern with fire. You pick up that lantern and all of a sudden you can see the inside of the cave. You lift the lantern to inspect the cave's walls. And on the cave's walls, see any words or statements that have been said about you or that you have said about yourself that have caused discontent or even harm. Any feelings that come up, a fear or any excessive emotions, acknowledge them and allow them to go out into the ether and continue to inspect the walls. And see those words and images that have been put upon you that have caused harm or discontent in the past. Use the lantern to really acknowledge and see all of the words and images that have been put upon you. Acknowledge how they have created discontent or harm in the past. And as you acknowledge these words, acknowledge also those who have placed those words or those images in your mind and see them too on the walls. As you lower your lantern, you notice something else that is on the ground. There is a bucket that has been placed for you. You look in the bucket, and there's fresh, cool water. You place the lantern down, pick up the bucket, and bring the bucket to the walls and begin to pour the fresh, cool water over the walls. And allow for those words and images to meet the water, to come together with them. You notice that they begin to slide down, being washed away by this fresh, cool water. And allow for them to be washed away and for them to be absorbed into the ground. And the ground does absorb it. It absorbs all of the images and all of the labels and the words that have caused harm in the past or that have caused discontent. And allow for those words, and images, and memories to be absorbed by Pachamama. Acknowledge that you have carried those and that you do not carry them anymore. And allow for them to be absorbed 
washed away. Pick up your lantern and inspect the walls and see if there's anything else that needs to be washed away. And if so, throw the water, the remaining water at the walls and wash it all clean. Let there be nothing left. And then inspect the wall again and see it as a clean slate. And then see all of the things that you are, all of the ways that you are beautiful, unique, important, and begin creating those images and those words on the wall. Using your fingertip to carve into this wall with something new. If you'd rather, you can grab a stick and carve into the wall new words, new images of who you are. Acknowledge your beauty, your uniqueness, your compassion, your love. And scribble onto the walls. When you finish, place down the lantern and begin your journey out of the cave. Before you step out of the cave, just acknowledge all of the things that you are. And commit to reminding yourself and acknowledging for yourself all that you are and allowing for all that you are not to no longer be put upon you or to cause harm or discontent in your life. You turn around and you look back at the wall of words and images that are you one last time. And then you walk your way out of the cave, back along the path that you originally took. And come back to seeing yourself lying on the mat or seated in your chair. Notice that all of this has been broadcast onto your memories, onto your future, and into your present. Notice that you have seen and witnessed these events. Acknowledge yourself as observer and as co-creator. Then allow this projector of memories and of future moments in the present to go away. Just see the backs of your eyelids and come back to your natural breath. Take a full breath in that fills your entire body. 
and a long exhale. Do that again. Take a full breath in. Belly rises. Pelvic floor presses down. And an exhale that sighs out. Sonic exhale. <sighs> Begin to bring movement back into your extremities, your fingers and your toes. Movement into your head or neck. And draw your shoulders to your ears. And then allow them to melt down your back. And just acknowledge yourself as whole, complete, and beautiful. And if this affirmation rings true for you. Say, repeat to yourself, I am. I am becoming. I acknowledge the fullness of all that I am in all of its beauty. And I invite you to say that to yourself as often as you need. When you're ready, blink open your eyes. It is always my goal to leave you better than I found you. And I hope that happened for you today. Namaste. You've been listening to Think, Flow, Grow. This is Tamika with Asha Yoga. I'd love to hear your feedback and would love to hear any topics that you'd like for me to address feel free to email me at tamika at ashayoga.com. Also, you can go to that website to find out upcoming workshops, retreats, and events in your area.